Our Father, we are thankful for your guidance. We are thankful for your oversight of our lives. We thank you that you are available to us. You know all things, you see all things, you know the end from the beginning. We don't. We are on this journey, we are walking through life. And each day is different. Each stage of life is different. Our teen years, our strange years, we're, we're just making all these changes, adjustments. Then we hit our 20s, then we're into our 30s, then we're in midlife in the 40s. Then we're 50, can't believe it, 60, 70, 80. Some of us are still around in the 90s. Very few make it into triple digits. But we thank you for your faithfulness and we thank you that you're available to us in all those decades and in all those changes and all those seasons. And that you promised to guide us, that we're not in this by ourselves. There are always challenges. There are always potential threats. In Psalm 32, you said, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. You said that to David after he confessed his sin with Bathsheba, after he repented, after he came clean. For a year, he attempted to hide it and to live a double life and a deceitful life. And you weren't offering guidance. What he needed was to do business with you and to come clean. And you were interested in his heart. You're interested in our hearts. And, th and that's why you're such a great father. But once you saw the brokenness of his heart, once you saw the genuine repentance, genuine, not fake, but there was a, a contrite heart. As old Thomas Watson used to say, repentance is the vomiting of the soul. And once he purged that sin and, and loathed it and hated it, your forgiveness was all over him as it is over us. And that's when you said, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. So help us to learn from that. If we need your guidance, we cannot be playing around with things that you have told us clearly not to be involved in. You see it all, you know it all. You don't want us to be half-hearted. You want us to be all in and to trust you and uh, to be not, not men who are about our agenda, but we're about the agenda that you have for us. Thank you, Lord. This is a, this is a time where we need great wisdom. It, it's a time where 
critical decisions are being made, and we thank you for your promise to guide. We thank you for your promise to give us wisdom. Uh, we thank you that you are abundantly available in tight places. What a great God you are. And for that wisdom, all we have to do is ask. James told us, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach. We're so grateful for that promise. That gives us hope for what's ahead, even tomorrow. Encourage us tonight as we open your book. Give us teachable hearts so that we might benefit from what your counsel is to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we were in John 5. We'll finish up John 5 tonight. Uh, what we're doing in John 5 is that we're doing heavy lifting. Heavy lifting in the Christian life is deep thinking. There, there's, there's a lot of Christianity, there are a lot of churches that are a mile wide and an inch deep. And they may, they may say that they believe the Bible, but they don't get too deep in the Bible. And the reason they don't get too deep in the Bible is they want everybody to come back and they want everyone to like it and they, they don't want to offend anybody. And, they, and so what they do is they're superficial. But the problem with that is it doesn't help anybody. And oftentimes that approach is, well, we don't want to offend anybody because we want everybody coming back. Um, that's the wrong approach. Your job is not to get them back. Your job is to preach the word. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So as, as we study the word, as we declare the word, that's where freedom comes from. And that's where significant change takes place. And in John 5, Jesus is teaching some heavy truths that demand some heavy lifting, um, which equates to deep thinking. It's not superficial. It's not first grade stuff. It's, uh, it's upper level courses. Last week, we looked at verses basically 16 down to 24, where Jesus made five claims that he was God. And that section actually runs down even to verse 32. Tonight, we're going to continue the heavy lifting. And we're going to be in John 5, 33 down to 47. And what's going to happen tonight is that we're going to see five witnesses that confirm the claims he made to be God. Five witnesses who will confirm the claims that he made that he was indeed God. So they're all tied together. If a Christian 
is not grounded in certain truths, you're very easy pickings for Satan's deceptions. That's why we want to grow in grace. That's why we want to mature. That, that's why we don't want to just be on the milk of the word. That's why we want the meat and the vegetables. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's why we do Bible study. Last week, we mentioned that Jesus makes these claims, five claims about being God. And the whole message of the Gospel of John is that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God. But historically, there have been groups that have claimed to be Christian that are not Christian because they get it wrong on who, on who Jesus is. They get it wrong on that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, that God's revelation is complete in the Bible, that revelation does not continue. Revelation is finished in the scriptures. And those are the essentials of Christian truth that we looked at last week. We talked a little bit about those who have not understood that the Bible is authoritative. It is the word of God. It is the word of Christ. And what and Satan is all about saying that you cannot trust the Bible. He is all about saying the Bible is uh, corrupted. The Bible is uh, impure. The Bible is the book of men when the Bible claims it's the word of God over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. It either is or it isn't. And there are reasons we believe that it's the word of God. Some have said, oh, the, 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 the copies down through the ages have been corrupted. Actually, that's quite an exact science. It's amazing. It's amazing how much assurance we have of the validity of the copies of the text that we have. Uh, it, it's, uh, I mean, quite frankly, it's a no-brainer. This is the word of God. I mean, I die for that without hesitation. I have no doubts this is the word of God. Yet the enemy keeps trying to cast doubt that it is the word of God. And he keeps trying to deceive people and get them off course. Uh, we talked about a couple of men last week. One, Joseph Smith, who um, said he had a, a vision of an angel, and he did. He, um, he listened to the angel. The angel's uh, name was Moroni. Well, if you go to the uh, Mormon temple in Salt Lake, or there's one in LA, there's one in Oakland, there are different ones around the country. At the top of those uh, incredible temples, you'll see a, an angel, Moroni. We looked last week at Galatians 1.6, just briefly. Let's go there again. Paul says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort, distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. So even if an angel shows up and preaches to you a different gospel, um, let him be accursed. Let him, let him be damned. 
I mean, it, it, it can't get any stronger than that because it's a different gospel. Yeah, but it's an angel. Yeah, but that's why you see you got to be doing Bible study and growing in the Word of God because if you take a look at 2 Corinthians, you just back up. If you look at 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. They're not apostles, but they're disguising themselves. Watch this. For no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So one of the ways that Satan deceives, and he did this with Muhammad, he had an angelic vision, gave him a different gospel, uh, but, but, and, and they come with writings and all of this uh, that deny that Jesus is the Son of God. So it denies the claims that Jesus made in John 5. It's very important that we understand that. But then you take a man like Martin Luther. So Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic priest who wanted to have peace with God but he was a brilliant scholar and he gave his life to the Lord. If you spare me, I'll, I'll follow you. I'll become a priest and all that. He was a brilliant scholar, but he couldn't, find, he couldn't find peace with God. He couldn't find forgiveness for his sins. And he did everything. He did all the works. Roman Catholicism was based on works. And he would, he would confess every sin that he could possibly think of and enumerate it. And he would actually actually out of exhaustion, fall asleep in his bed, trying to remember every sin he'd ever committed in his life. And then he'd wake up a few hours later in absolute guilt and despair because he knew that he had forgotten some sin and hadn't confessed it, and therefore he wasn't forgiven. And he would go through all the works and do the penance, and he would, and, but he was, he was really uh, studying the scriptures, and he came across these phrases in Galatians, and in Romans, that the just shall live by faith. And he began, and God opened his eyes, and he understood the gospel. And he understand that we're not justified by works. We're justified by grace alone, in, by faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the gospel. And he began to study this. He began to declare it. There was a guy named Tetzel who was uh, an emissary from the Vatican. They had to raise all the money for all the cathedrals. And they came up with this uh, Ponzi scheme that if you put in certain money, your relatives who were in purgatory, which doesn't exist, by the way, if you throw in, you know, 10 grand, you can knock off 100 years in purgatory. And they're raising money right and left to build these cathedrals. And when he got a hold of the word of God... He, got, he was incensed. So he stood up and wrote a declaration, put it on the door of the church, and uh, suddenly he was the most wanted man in the world because he took him on for the gospel. An amazing story. And out of that came the Reformation. But he put his life on the line. And he was called in to meet before the Roman Catholic, you know, hierarchy. And uh, a few guys had stood up before and they were burned to the stake and drawn and quartered. And it wasn't looking real good for Martin Luther. And he's on his way there. And uh, 
He'd already had one meeting and they asked him, they looked at his writings and they asked him to recant. He said, I won't do it unless I'm convinced in my conscience and by the word of God, here I stand, I can do no other. And then he had to go back, but uh, he was kidnapped. He was kidnapped by his a wealthy financial supporter who knew what would happen to him. And he didn't know he was kidnapped by friends. He just knew he was being kidnapped and they put him in this castle. Then he figured out it was his friends. And he was there for months. And he took the Bible, which was in Latin, which nobody could read except the priest. You can even read a Bible. And the Bible was chained to an altar at the front. You couldn't even get access. And he started translating the Bible out of Latin into everyday German. And just by chance, there was this guy named Gutenberg who had uh, been working on this deal for, anyway. And just by chance, the printing press was out about, about then. And, and while he's up there in that castle translating scripture, these guys are shooting it down to Gutenberg and he's printing and it's starting to go all over Germany and it's starting to go all over Europe. And then all of a sudden, people are calling on the name of the Lord to be saved. It's what's called the Reformation. While he was up there in that castle one night translating scripture, Jesus appeared to him just as he was going to bed. You know what Luther did? He reached on the desk, took the inkwell, and he threw it at Jesus. And he said, get thee behind me, vision." The Lord Jesus has already been revealed to me in his word. Now, there you go. <laughs> I love that. Martin Luther knew he didn't need Jesus to appear to him. This is the word of Christ. You see? That's the difference. He knew the essentials. He knew that Jesus was God. He knew that this book was the word of God. You see how important it is to have a biblical foundation. Because there is a deceiver and he's still out there and he's still at work and he's still deceiving. Tonight we're going to look at the five witnesses that confirm the claims that Jesus made that he is God. I'll go ahead and give them to you. First of all, the first one is the witness of John the Baptist in verses 33 to 35. Then you have the witness of the works or the miracles that Jesus did. That's verse 36. Then you've got the witness of God the Father. Verses 37 to 38. Then you've got the witness of Scripture, verses 39 to 47. And then within that section, you've got the witness of Moses, verses 45 to 47. This is all tied together. It's a unit. So we read in verse 33, you have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. He's speaking to John the Baptist here. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, 
was the lamp that was burning and shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So earlier in the Gospel of John, we see John the Baptist, who was the forerunner, who was announcing that the Messiah was coming. They ask him, are you, are you the Messiah? No, I'm not. He's coming after me. Now, John the Baptist was a cousin to Jesus. He was roughly six months older than Jesus. If you look at uh, John chapter 1, if you look at uh, verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I. Watch this. For he existed before me. How can he exist before you when you're six months older? Because he's God. Which would be John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus is God. As one of the old hymns says, he exists uncreated before the world began. How can you exist uncreated before the world began? That's true of the Father, that's true of the Son, that's true of the Holy Spirit. See, this is what you call heavy lifting, isn't it? Because that's way beyond us, but it's what is revealed, and, and John affirmed it, and John confirmed right out of the blocks that Jesus He's the son of God. Then, secondly, you've got the witness of the miracles. You've got the witness of the works. Verse 36. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. So he turns the water into wine. Earlier in John 5, here's this paralytic man who hadn't walked in 38 years. Jesus just walks up to the guy and heals him, and the guy doesn't even know who Jesus is. That's a miracle. And all the way through, in, in fact, in John, you've got seven signs, you've got seven miracles that demonstrate uh, only God could do that. There's a man with a withered hand, and Jesus says, stretch forth thy hand. Well, a guy with a withered hand can't stretch forth his hand. In other words, Jesus is saying to the guy, do something. He's telling him to do something impossible. And then the guy just kind of, uh, boom. There you go. And they couldn't deny it. And this is what made such a big problem for the Pharisees that hated him and wanted to kill him, is that they couldn't deny the works I mean, everybody saw him. And, and Jesus, all these people that came to him, he would heal them. It was astonishing. So the witness of the power of the miracles confirmed he's God. You can't do this unless you're God. You know, sometimes God just shocks us. Uh, Ray Steadman when he was preaching through John, I think back, this had to be back in the, in the 80s. He's now with the Lord. But I went to Peninsula Bible Church where he was pastor from 
first went there when I was a senior in high school. And then went away to college when I come back and was there. And then when I graduated, I came back and drove a truck before I went to seminary and was real involved there. But um, in the 50s and 60s, they, uh, they would take Ray's sermons and they would um, make copies of them on a mimeograph machine. Now, some of you young guys, you should Google mimeograph. M-I-M-E-O-G-R-A-P-H. Every church in the world had a mimeograph machine. That was high tech back then, you know. And, uh, and so they had a rack of, you know, last week's sermons. And then they, they just had racks with all the sermons going back at the time. You know, I think Ray went there in 51 or 52. And so you could just reach up and get, you know, they had stacks of sermons in there. Well, Ray's telling the story that somehow someone took some of those sermons up to a prison. I think it was San Quentin. And they were doing a Bible study and one of the, Guys came to know the Lord, and the chaplain came in, and these guys are studying race sermons. And uh, the guy who was sort of the, he, he was a prisoner, and he was one of the leaders, and he was really getting into the word and growing. And they had a Christmas time celebration, and apparently they allowed some family members, children, to come in and do some visiting with, you know, their dads who were there. And they did a little Christmas presentation and read some scripture. And um, one of the little girls came in on crutches, obviously had something along the lines of cystic fibrosis or would be that way for the rest of her life. And they were reading the Christmas story and then talking, you know, guys were sharing testimonies. And when they were done, this little girl, maybe eight or nine, came up to him and, and said, I have, I have heard, and I've been in Sunday school, that Jesus healed people. And the guy said, yes, he did. And he healed all these people in the Bible. And he said, yes, that's true. She said, I'd like Jesus to heal me. And, and the guy about choked because, well, sure, that'd be wonderful. But um, <laughs> what's he going to do? Uh, he didn't know what to do. So you know what he did? He prayed for her. He took her hand and prayed that Jesus would heal her. And Jesus did. And she said, I can feel my legs. And she put those crutches away and took the braces off her leg and started walking around normally. And each year for years, she would come back and that little girl was healed. We have these guys on Christian television and they all seem to have private jets and they're faith healers. Read, uh, read Costi Hinn, Benny Hinn's nephew. Read his book. He, uh, he was a part of that. He was on stage. You've seen that on TV. You know, these healings, and they, 
They slay him on the spirit and they go back. He was a catcher. He was a catcher. My question is, if the Holy Spirit puts you down, could he not give you a three-point landing? <laughs> Just a perfect soft, why would you need a catcher? Well, you need a catcher because it's not the Holy Spirit. It's just mass hysteria or something. Um, doesn't mean God can't knock someone down. By the way, when God knocks someone down in Scripture, they go on their face. They don't go on their back. But Costi Hinn was in this in the $20,000 a night hotel rooms and living like Saudi princes and all that. And then he started really digging into the Bible. That's dangerous. <laughs> and uh, he loves his family, but uh, he loves the word of God. And he's proclaiming the gospel and he's calling them out. Can Jesus heal today? Sure. Absolutely. I've, I've seen, I've seen that personally, not much, but I, I've seen genuine healings that, that have, for, for years, people I knew. Uh, we believe Jesus heals. I don't believe in faith healers because I don't see it in the word of God. The apostles could do it. But all I'm saying is, what a tremendous thing. By the way, James said, if any of you are sick, let him call for the elders of the church to pray. We, the, the thing is, we are told in this day and age, and it's a deception, you're, you're told by these guys on TV that it's part of the prosperity gospel. They'll tell you that healing is in the atonement. Healing is not in the atonement. If you study that passage carefully in Isaiah 53 and then how Peter interprets it, he doesn't apply it to physical healing. He's talking about sin in the soul. But they say it's God's will that everyone be healed. I was reading this week about a faith healer who supposedly has healed other people. Now he's got an affliction and he can't heal himself. Not, um, it's not always God's will to heal. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. Three times he asked the Lord to heal him. And three times the Lord said, Sure, and I'll give you a private jet. <laughs> That's not what happened. God said no three times. And why did God say no? Because his power is perfected in weakness. Sometimes God will, will allow us a physical affliction because it's more important that he do something in our heart than to relieve a physical affliction. We got to measure everything by the word of God because there's a lot of deception and there's a lot of false claims. So you have the witness of the works. Then number three, you have the witness of the father in verses 37 and 38. The witness of the father to what? That this is my son, therefore he is God. And the father who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. He's talking here to the Pharisees. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you not, do not believe whom he sent. 
In other words, if you don't have the son, you don't have the father. In other words, if you deny the son, you can't have the father. Even though you use the term God, even though you, no. That's what 1 John's all about. Then, fourthly, you have the witness of Scripture. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Watch this. It is these that testify about me. From Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Revelation 22, the Scriptures are about Christ. In the Old Testament, they're pointing to the coming Christ. In the New Testament, we have the Gospels. Then he ascends after his resurrection. The Holy Spirit is with the apostles. They spread out from persecution. The Holy Spirit writes scripture through the apostles to the different churches. The scripture is completed, but the scriptures are about Jesus. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. See, if people deny who Jesus is, they can't have eternal life. There is no other name given to men under heaven by which men might be saved than the name of Jesus. There is no other way. There is no other avenue. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The world hates that because it's so narrow. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few are those who find it. 41, I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Now, he nails them right here, and he, uh, he exposes them. Because what the Pharisees were all about, these religious leaders, they were all about what he said in 44. They were all about receiving glory from one another. They were like a bunch of Hollywood actors. Is it, am I wrong? Because I don't keep up with this. But is there a Hollywood award show every other week? I mean, I was a kid, there was the Oscars. And it, it was actually kind of fun to watch and it was clean and, you know, it was just fun. You watch the Oscars. There are only three channels. I mean, what else are you going to watch? But now, I mean, every time you turn around, there's another award show. And, and, and who's in the audience? The members of Hollywood, the actors, the producers, the directors, and they're giving awards to whom? Same. I mean, this is, that's the Pharisees. What they wanted was the approval and the glory from others. And you think the Pharisees, you know, well, you, you guys are all about the glory of God. No, they were about the glory that comes from others in self-aggrandizement and uh, selfish ambition. 
Selfish ambition is talked about in scripture. Selfish ambition is the need to be first. It's the need to lead. It's the need to be in the spotlight. You you see this in uh, Christian circles. Look at James 3, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. In other words, this has taken a shot at hypocrisy. But if you have, now watch this, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, there's a type of ambition that's legitimate. Paul says we make it our ambition, whether in the body or out of the body, to please the Lord. I want to please the Lord. It's a good ambition. You know, we we make it our ambition to lead quiet lives, it says in Thessalonians, and to work with our hands and to be good citizens. There's a right kind of ambition. You know that. It's legitimate. It's, uh, it's a good thing. But there's a counterfeit. It's selfish ambition. Listen to this. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be so arrogant and lie against the truth. Watch this. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, from the Father, but it is earthly, it is natural, it is demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. When someone is all... So here, here's, a, here's another term for selfish ambition, narcissism. When you're all about yourself, when it's all about you, when... Uh, when you're around somebody and they may cloak it and you know cover it and do the best they can, but when you really get to know some, so everyone has a public life and everyone has a private life. I recently attended a funeral of a man who um, was in ministry for 70 years. And he was, um, Revered by many people who knew his public ministry. Revered. In fact, his children would also often be told, your dad is such a godly man. He's, he's the greatest Christian I've ever met. I knew this man well. He was full of selfish ambition. You know how hard it was for his children to hear those words? I've never heard someone speak so cruelly to his adult children than that man. Wrote Christian books, you can still buy them. Greatest Christian I've read, oh oh my gosh, the impact he had on my life. He was this, he was that, he was that. Not really, because he was all about selfish ambition. He would do anything to further his reach. He would do anything. I've seen him lie many times. What was interesting, watch this for years and years and years, and uh, the hypocrisy was astonishing. Uh, his kids deeply struggled if Christianity was true or not because of their father. Because it was such a dichotomy. He was one way 
around other people. And he was so nice to other people. And he was, he, he was pure health to live with. Um, they struggled deeply. It, it, it was a tragedy to watch. And he got worse as he got older and um, did some things that were absolutely unbelievable. Throughout scripture, you'll find a phrase that, that is used that he who digs a pit for another will fall into it. And that's what happened to him towards the end of his life. And he had some grandiose schemes that blew up in his face. And as he was bound and determined to, uh, he rarely talked about heaven, even in his 90s, because he was all about himself. But what happened was, all these people he had wounded, all these people he had hurt, um, he basically walked, he walked away from his wife in, when they were in their late 80s. And he couched it in certain terms, but he abandoned that woman. And she died alone. It was horrible. And he was off on this scheme and this scheme. And then what happened, um, those schemes blew up and he fell into a pit of his own making. I wasn't looking forward to that funeral. But apparently, not apparently, but what happened was that he was stripped of everything for the last year and a half of his life. Physically, he, he was stripped of everything. Couldn't leave the little room because of COVID. Just utterly stripped, he was in a pit of his own making. He had a daughter that was faithful would come and check on him and all of this. And uh, he turned to the Lord. And it was remarkable. There was a man in the Old Testament who was the worst king in the history of Judah. His name was Manasseh. He sacrificed his own son in the fire. He brought in... Uh, idols into the Holy of Holies, brought in a sexual symbol, a phallic symbol in the Holy of Holies. His name was Manasseh. And he refused to listen to the prophets. And at a certain point, they put a hook in his nose and he was taken into captivity and he was in a dungeon for 12 years. And at the end of that time, he repented and turned from his sin and turned to the Lord and repented from the selfish ambition. And you know what God did? God forgave him and God restored him back to the throne. And he spent the rest of his life trying to rebuild what he had destroyed. We can all get caught up in selfish ambition. The thing is, when you realize you're in it, what is the thing to do? The thing to do is to repent and turn to the Lord. If you've got breath, you can turn to the Lord. 
if you've been living a double life, you can turn to the Lord because of who Christ is, because he's God, and because he has taken all our sins upon him. And we can turn to him. And when there's genuine repentance, there is, there is forgiveness. It's the gospel. It's the absolute gospel, but it's based on who Jesus is. Fifthly, you have the witness of scripture. Back in um, John 5, this is kind of heavy stuff, isn't it? But see, I told you it's heavy lifting and it's deep thinking because we're not just here to do Bible study, to get information and to get facts. The purpose of this is to apply it to our lives. And this man that I'm referring to said in a lot of Bible studies, wrote a lot of Bible studies, wrote a lot of books about the Bible. In fact, when they were putting together his obituary, they were listing the books that he had written. And one of the adult children said, let's not include the ones he wrote on family matters. Because we don't want anyone reading those. Because there was such a hypocrisy there. So you see, the danger is, the danger is to be walking around with a marked up Bible and you go on the road and you take your books and they're buying your books and all of that and you're full of selfish ambition. You know where selfish ambition comes from? Satan. This wisdom is not from above, but it's earthly, it's natural, it's demonic. And where there is selfish ambition, there is evil and disorder. Every, every wicked thing. So that's what Satan did. He was the highest of the angels, yet he wanted to be equal with God. And he rebelled against God. Out of selfish ambition. Let's go back to John chapter 5. Let's look at the witness of Moses. And here, here he, he just absolutely nails these guys. Verse 45. Because they love Moses. They love the law and they love their commentary on the law. They indicted Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath, which is really interesting because Jesus owns the Sabbath and has the copyright on the Sabbath and invented the Sabbath because he's God and he's not subject to the Sabbath. But they added all these rules and regulations to the Sabbath. And he says to them in verse 45, do not think I will accuse you before the father. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. You've not set your hope in God. You've set your hope in Moses. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He wrote about Jesus. You say, he did? Where? How about Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. By the way, scripture says all things were created by him and for him and through him. Jesus was the primary agent of the Trinity in creation. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So he totally exposes these guys and lets them know they have been utterly deceived. Now, Let's apply this to where we are right now. Because we are living 
I, I, I mean, I feel like a broken record. And you say the same thing that I say up here. We have never seen anything like this. And this just can't keep getting worse, can it? Yeah, it can. And we're told in Scripture that that's the way it's going. This is all being set up for the Antichrist. Now, what's the timing of that? What's that? I don't know, but you can see it all being set up. I, I mean, it's, it's astonishing. So what's Satan's strategy right now? What, what his strategy was, it's always been to deceive. Jesus said to the, these religious leaders, you are of your father, the devil. He's a liar. He's a murderer. He's a he's a destroyer. So, so let's hone in on this. What is Satan's strategy right now? Number one, to cancel the claims of Christ that he is God. Oh, no, he's not God. If 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 there is an absolute truth on a university campus is that. It is that there is no God. They don't even believe in absolute truth, but absolutely they will tell you there is no God. Secondly, and this is all about canceling. They want to cancel the claims of Christ that he is God. Secondly, Satan wants to cancel the witnesses who confirm that he is God. So just think about that. He wants to Cancel out the miracles that Jesus did. You've got biblical scholars, quote unquote. They'll go in and say, oh, well, that never happened. That never happened. How that? Actually, it did happen. How would you know? It's called higher criticism. It's been around since the 1700s in Germany. These men who don't know the Lord that come in, they read the Bible, but their whole purpose is to destroy it and deny it and deconstruct it and say that it isn't true. They want, right out of the blocks, the first thing said, Satan said when he tempted the woman, she said, God says if we eat of the tree, we'll die. He said, you shall not die. Satan's work is always to cast aspersion on the word of God. Always. Which goes right along with number three, he wants to cancel the authority of God's word. So what are we seeing happen in our society? What are we seeing happening in our culture? We've never been a perfect nation, but we've seen God bless our nation. Why? Because you go back and you look at the foundational documents of this country, and you go to D.C., and whenever you go to D.C., you see Scripture chiseled in stone. Everything has, has some kind of foundation. You don't see verses from the Koran in D.C. yet. Because you see freedom and liberty come from somewhere. And where they come from is the word of God. There's a reason that Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson wanted the seal of the United States of America. They wanted the seal to be Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt and out of slavery into the promised land and freedom. That's what they wanted. And they were both deist. But they had enough sense to know that freedom comes from God. 
But see, we denied that. So we cancel the claims of Christ. We cancel the witnesses who confirm the claims of Christ. We cancel the authority of God's word. Now, here's where we are, number four. We criminalize the gospel and the Great Commission. We criminalize the gospel and the Great Commission. And I'm going to finish with this. So we're to a point right now. Perhaps you've heard of um, conversion therapy laws being passed in different cities, in different states, in California. Joe Carter writes, uh, recently a proposed city ordinance in Indiana highlights why bans on conversion therapy can be a threat to the gospel. The city council of West Lafayette is considering an ordinance that would make it uh, illegal for unlicensed counselors to counsel minors on human sexuality in a way that conflicts with LGBT plus orthodoxy. Example of a teenager who goes to a Christian counseling center about unwanted same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria, it would be breaking the law to give them answers based on biblical sexual ethics. It would be breaking the law. However, the law makes an exception, though, for counseling that affirms a minor's embrace of homosexuality or gender identity. According to the ordinance, conversion therapy shall not include counseling that provides assistance to persons undergoing gender transition or counseling that provides acceptance, support, and understanding of a person or facilitates a person's, a person's coping, social, social support, and identity exploration and development, including sexual orientation, neutral interventions to prevent the address, to prevent or address unlawful conduct or unsafe sexual practices as long as such counseling does not seek to change an individual's sexual orientation or gender identity. You can't teach biblical morality, but you cannot question the gay agenda. Um, the Daily Wire is Ben Shapiro's website. He's an Orthodox Jew. He's brilliant. He talks at a rate of 7,000 words a minute. That is unbelievable. My wife sent this to me yesterday. John MacArthur calls on pastors to preach biblical sexuality in defiance of new Canadian law that would criminalize evangelism. So if you've heard of Pastor James Coates, who's already been put in jail over COVID because he said Christ is head of the church, not Caesar. Uh, Canadian pastors are warning that a new conversion therapy bill just passed by Parliament will likely ban them from teaching that homosexuality and transgenderism are sins according to the Bible. And it was passed um, in both the House of Commons and it was passed in both the House and Commons and the Senate and no one stood up against it. Why would they not stand up? Because I'm telling you, there were guys that thought this was wrong. They were afraid. And they capitulated. Critics, it's called C4. Critics say C4's language is so broad, it also, it also effectively bans preaching and teaching based on biblical sexual ethics. 
and they make it broad on purpose. And by the way, you know, this is Canada. Have you heard of something called the Equality Act? Go check it out. It's the same thing. They're going to make it illegal to preach and teach. They're going to make it illegal to preach the gospel. They're going to make it illegal to teach 1 Corinthians 6. They're going to make it illegal to teach biblical morality. Illegal. And here, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, violations carry a penalty of up to five years in prison. John MacArthur has been talking to some of these pastors in Canada and they contacted him. And so together with him, they've declared, I believe it is um, an upcoming Sunday is going to be called Conversion Sunday, uh, January 16th. And they're inviting pastors to stand up and preach on biblical morality on January 16th. And a number of pastors in Canada have said, we're preaching on biblical morality. And they're probably going to be arrested and they're probably going to go to jail. Now, if you think that's not coming here, you're kidding yourself. See, this is why we do heavy lifting in Scripture. This is why we, we have to think deeply. Because we're not playing games anymore. And it's not the 1950s anymore. And it's not Ozzie and Harriet. It's all changed. This is all out spiritual battle. It's spiritual warfare. And we're going to see some stuff coming down the pike that is going to be hard and difficult. And we're going to experience persecution like it's been experienced, experienced by believers in other nations for centuries. We've just had a pass for 200 years. The article in the Gospel Coalition called The Story of Iran's Church in Two Sentences. This is back in 2000, what was it, 16? One such story is about the church in Iran, and it's one of the greatest stories in the world today. It can be simply summarized in two sentences. Persecution threatened to wipe out Iran's tiny church. Instead, the church in Iran has become the fastest growing in the world and is influencing the region for Christ. In 1979, a hardline Islamic regime came in. Some of us remember that. Missionaries were kicked out. Pastors were put in jail. Several were killed. Many soon feared the small Iranian church would soon wither away and die. It, 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 was, it was probably a church that consisted of 500 believers in the entire nation. And then things turned. And then what happened was the gospel began to take off in the midst of persecution. That always happens. There's a statement out of church history that the blood of the martyrs is seed. We're going to persecute. We're going to do everything we can do to cancel out the church and the gospel and the Great Commission and Jesus. And we're going to stamp it out by killing them. But they can't do it because the blood of the martyrs is seed. It's seed. More Iranians have come, have become Christians in the last 20 years than in the previous 13 centuries. And there's been unbelievable persecution. This article gives three quick testimonies. One of a man who was a Muslim scholar 
who wanted to become uh, an ayatollah, a Shiite leader. One day while studying at, his, at an Islamic seminary in Iran, he found the New Testament that had been boldly left in the library. Out of curiosity, he picked it up and was deeply shaken. Over time, he fell in love with Jesus. Today, he's a trained church planner serving in Iran. Fatima's earliest memories were being raped by her brothers. At age 11, she was sold in marriage to a young drug addict who abused her and then divorced her when she was 17. Upon returning home, she was raped again and decided to leave. On the street, she heard a man preaching the gospel. She trusted Jesus. In time, she married a Christian man as they were receiving training in evangelism and church planning. She felt called to go back home and witness to her family. Her entire family repented and gave their lives to Christ. The first church that Fatima and her husband planted was in her childhood home. So is persecution on its way? Apparently so. How are we gonna handle this? How are we gonna deal with this? How do we move ahead? How do we, we live our lives We'll finish by taking a quick glance at First Peter because he tells us how to handle this. And we're the men, we're the husbands, we're the fathers, we're the grandfathers, we're called to lead our families. And God does not want us shaking with fear. He wants us to be men who are, um, <laughs> who are stable and steady and sober and uh, not panicked. You know that great old hymn of the church, Jesus, I am panicking, panicking? <laughs> Probably not. But you may know that great hymn, Jesus, I am resting, resting. In the joy of what thou art, I am finding out the greatness of thy heart. Thou hast bid me to look upon thee and thy beauty. The greatness of his character fills my soul. For by thy transforming power, thou hast made me whole. Christians all over the world have faced persecution. New Testament. For us, this is new. So First Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised. Well, we're surprised. <laughs> I'll admit it. Never thought I'd see this in my lifetime. But it's coming, and it's coming fast like a freight train. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. This is not strange for believers. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler or a narcissist, we could add, or a man full of selfish ambition. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of Christ? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Watch this. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. That's what the people in Iran did back in the 70s and 80s. 
That's what believers in China are doing, in North Korea. And that's what we're going to be doing. And he's trustworthy. And he's got a plan. And he's coming back. And he's going to rule and he's going to reign forever. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you. You've not given us the spirit of fear, but that of power and love and sound thinking. We entrust you with our lives. It's in Jesus name we pray. The name that's above every name. Amen.